let me let me let me jump in and before I say anything I I just I'm feeling um, I was very sick all night and I just have a whole section of my sermon that has brackets around it and it just says maybe because I'm in like the no food little bit of water zone you know just my little water wherever it went and uh, if you're an NBA fan I feel very Michael Jordan 1997 game five that's how I feel right now well <laughs> that's how I feel so just just be just just be be conscious of that I don't know how long I'm gonna last here so really briefly just can you pray with me God help me help me God help me help me help me help me help me amen <clears throat> a few months ago um, my in October my wife and I moved into a house on Lake Avenue, it's a and it's and it's about a block from this this massive housing community in East Tampa called Belmont Heights Estates. Does anybody know what Belmont Heights Estates is? Yeah, and it's just this. Uh, uh, I think it's 72 uh, acres of about 850 units, living units, and it's all uh, and they're they're beautiful because they were just done in the the between 2007 and 2009, um, and they all look very similar. They just have different colors of paint and everything, and on that site used to be uh, the, the, these kind of notorious towers, College Hill and Ponce de Leon. And those got tore down and these got built in their place. And my wife and I moved just a block away from those into uh, our little house. And part, we, had, we had some other houses that we were in the process of looking for a house we were thinking about and, and a lot of stuff didn't work out. And we really feel convinced now I, uh, you know, it, we could only see through glass dimly at the time, but we really believe now we're supposed to be close to this to this community. And so we started early, early phase kind of planting a microchurch um, in Belmont Heights. And so uh, I actually joined the planting cohort. Some of you people were a part of the, the microchurch planting cohort with me. And uh, uh, part of what we started doing coming out of that cohort is building relationships with some of the residents and with some of the management of that community at the time. There's three phases of that community, phase one, phase two, phase three. Each phase has a, like a social services coordinator, and they used to have three social service coordinators per phase, but now they only have one because of budget cuts. And um, the phase three social services coordinator got cut because I don't know if any of you know, but back in December of 2016, like 30% of those units, the families had to move out because the person, the, the contractor that built all those, built them with toxic, illegal drywall from China and just, sh and just was trying to save a buck and, and built out almost all of phase three with illegal toxic drywall. So families were living in houses that were like killing them, making them sick. And so they've all had to, a lot of those units are still empty while that all gets in litigation. Um, and so we, well, I, I started meeting with one of the social service coordinators. Her, her name is Deirdre, and uh, she goes by D. She's this amazing, uh, uh, saucy, and, and like maybe uh, mid to late 50s Afro-Latina woman, like this just amazing woman. And the reason why I spend the most time with her is because that position, that so social services coordinator position, it's like the most... Uh, a transient position in the whole community. People don't last more than like nine months. So the other two have only been there for three to six months. She's been there for six years. And she, she's in phase two. It's where this community center is with like a, like a learning computer room. And then there's like a little like pool outside. And she, she, ha she uh, staffs that whole community center. 
So I just started meeting with her, getting to know her, you know, hearing her story, all this kind of stuff. And early on in the process, I just told her, look, my wife and I, we've always been people who like to do kind of neighborhood ministry, house church kind of stuff. Um, and we just moved in down the, down the road, and we'd just love to be able to, you know, c- collaborate with you, figure out how to get involved and build community, all this kind of stuff. And I told her, I remember telling her, I love to find the, the intersection, the overlap between like a place of a place of need, a place where 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 you need somebody, something the community needs something, and something that I'm very passionate about, something I feel gifted in. I want to I want to find that overlap with you. Can we find that overlap? She said yes. I love that. What an what an amazing concept. Let's do this. Um, and and she's a believer, so I mean, you know, I was talking to her about calling. She was like, I love it. I feel called to this work. That's the only reason I'm still here. Six years later, if the Lord would release me. I'm good. I don't. <laughs> and 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 I'm, I'm like I'm, I I hear that. I I hear what you're saying. And so I came back another time, another meeting, and I said, let's explore that together. Let's explore that. So what are, let's talk about what are some of the needs and this kind of stuff. And, and she was like, well, first, why don't you tell me what you think your like, gifts, passions, and, and your access to resources, that kind of stuff. And, and along that conversation, I told her, look, I graduated with a math degree. And math is like a foreign language for most people. So if you need, like, if you guys do tutoring or something, I could pop in every once in a while and help with math. Um, I, I, I have a truck, and that truck has a bunch of tools in it, and I know how to use half of them. So if you guys have, like, some just random emergency, I know you have a maintenance crew, but if you just have, like, emergency weekend thing, I'm right down the road, I can just come over. So I'm thinking the whole time, those are the things I'm kind of thinking I want to do. This is what God is doing. This is, like, the activity of God is that I'm going to get in, and I'm just going to kind of be, like, emergency help and help with the, help with the kids tutoring every once in a while. And she said, I, I hear everything you said. That's great. I'm, I'm excited you're so passionate about this. Let me show you what we need. I said, okay. So she takes me outside of the community center to this pool, this outdoor pool. And there's this, like, nine-foot fence with spikes on the top all the way around the pool. And she says, there used to be a four-foot fence all the way around this pool. And the rules are kids can only swim in the pool if they have an adult present. It's the only way you can swim. And the kids never have an adult with them, and they always want to come swim by themselves without an adult present. And so we kept catching kids trying to climb over this four-foot fence to get into this pool. We couldn't get them to stop. We couldn't get their parents to come with them. We couldn't get, like, we couldn't find volunteers who would come and work or whatever. So we had to replace that fence with this nine-foot fence. And on three different occasions, I've come in, and I've found a kid hanging by his shirt on that fence trying to get into this pool and this pool goes completely unused untouched and in a community full of children that want to swim in it so what i need you to do is i need you to sit at this pool that's what i need that's what i need once a week once a month once every you just need i need you to come and sit at this pool I was like, did you hear the thing about the math degree? Did you hear that part? I said that thing earlier. There was that thing I said about the tools and helping out, that thing, that part, that one. She said, yeah, no, I heard you. I totally heard you. What I need, it literally, all she needs from me, what she wants from me is my age being over 18. That's what she needs from me. That's what she needs. That's what she wants. And I kind of pushed back on her a little bit, I, and I kind of said, listen, I'm down, I'm down. 
Like maybe once a month I come over like half a day on a Saturday and I just sit here and I read. I do that anyways, just do it in a different spot and all these kids can play. And you can advertise it like, like open swim times or something like that. And then I can start kind of building a community of missionaries around the things that are kind of birthing out in ministry or whatever. And, uh, and, but, 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 I, I still am not quite sure that's the best use of my time. I wonder if, if maybe we could do some kind of, I don't know, like, um, you know, there was this light in this, this common room, and, and it was blinking while we were talking. I was like, I'm telling you, I could just fix that light. I could come here and fix that light. And she looked at me, and she said, sure, you could fix that light, which actually has nothing to speak to the dignity of kids. Or you could come sit at that pool which tears down the barrier of a nine-foot fence and speaks much more to the dignity of kids. And I thought, all right, D, all right. <laughs> all right, D. Maybe I should sit at that pool. Maybe I should sit at that pool. I think we have a human propensity to create God in our own image all the time. And I think an implication to creating God in our own image all the time, an implication of that is that we always expect God to work in the ways that we already want to work or to do the things we already want to do. And when we do that, when we do that, when we create God in our own image and we start to limit or expect the things that he wants to do in the world to the things that we already want to do or would like to do, we actually become blind to the things that he's actually doing around us and in the world. 300 years before Jesus got to this moment, Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. And at the time, the, ba the Babylonians were oppressing uh, 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 Jerusalem and, then, and, and all the Jewish people. Then the Persians conquered Babylon. The Persians are ruling over, over Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And then eventually Alexander the Great conquered the Persians and took control of Jerusalem. And the, the historian Joseph, Josephus actually chronicles a time where, where the Alexander the Great visited Jerusalem and he was greeted by his own triumphal entry. Riding a chariot, wearing an elegant crown of laurel, rejoicing over his conquest. Josephus records that Alexander, upon, upon getting to Jerusalem, one of the first things he did was go to the temple. And instead of saying anything or trying to change anything or anything, he just submitted. He acquiesced to the t temple system and actually participated and observed the sacraments there. Would Jesus be triumphant like Alexander? Will he ride in a chariot or a war horse? Will he wear a crown of laurel? Will he visit the temple in submission to participating in its current systems? 150 years before Jesus arrived in this moment, Judas Maccabeus led the Jewish people to victory over the Seleucid dynasty, the Maccabean revival, the Maccabean revolution. Judas was greeted in Jerusalem with his own triumphus, his own triumphal entry, including the waving of palm branches. And Josephus actually records that, that Judas actually stamped a picture of palm branches into Jewish coins, symbolizing victory for the Jews over their oppressors. Would Jesus come and be triumphant like Judas? Leading a violent revolution and liberating the Jews from their oppression under the Roman Empire. And in three of the four gospel accounts, the crowd cries, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means, it may, it literally, Hosanna literally means, save please. 
please save us, please save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us, Hosanna. And when they say that, when they say, Hosanna, please save us, please save us, they are asking for something very significant to Jesus. They're not just saying, save us, but they're saying, conquer like Alexander and save us like Judas, the revolutionary. But this long journey to Jerusalem that began in chapter 9, verse 51, all along the way, Jesus has alluded to his death with his disciples. Several moments where he has alluded to his death. But their hold on their own expectations of Jesus and, and the implications of that and how this is going to go and what he's going to do, their hold on those expectations has been too tight. And they will struggle to understand the form and scope of the salvation that he is bringing. And the crowd of disciples still do not understand. They celebrate his arrival at Jerusalem as if this were the beginning of his socio-political enthronement and the inevitable fall of Rome. But Jesus foreshadows the defiance of those expectations by foregoing the expected war horse, the expected war chariot, and instead choosing a display of great weakness by riding a young donkey, a new donkey, a colt. You see, he fought for us not with the violence of a war chariot, but with the sacrifice of furious love. He didn't take a sword to the Romans. He took a cross to the complex problem, the tyranny of the problem of sin, both personally and systemically in this world. The author of our faith, listen, the author of our faith, the firstborn of a new humanity, is not a king of conquest, but of cruciformity. And he takes no time to rejoice over his triumph, but instead he weeps over the city. He weeps over those who won't receive it, who are blind to it. He weeps over prolonged suffering under false peace. He weeps because they cannot see. He says that they cannot see. They're blind to what really makes peace. The moment he sees the cityscape, he is overcome by prophetic vision of what would come in the future. And he weeps. That word weep, dakru, the word does not mean merely that the, the tears force themselves up and well down his face. It's more of like a, a guttural, a heaving weeping, a heaving weeping, a cry of the soul in agony. We could have no stronger word than this. It's the cry of a mother over the loss of a child. It is the cry of extreme personal loss. He cries because they do not know what will bring true peace, and they are blind to it. Blind because they cannot have the imagination to conceive that God would be away or do a thing outside of their preset expectations. And blind because they want to preserve the systems in which that elite class is already benefiting. He cries because he is offering a way to true peace, to true life. Yet people are going to continue to willfully choose a path to destruction to preserve a false peace that they've known too long. I think the more we engage the heart of Jesus, the more we submit to him as Lord, 
the more that we engage with him emotionally, deeply, and in, in, in every version of ourselves, the more we become like him in every way of who we are, the more we will cry. The more you become like Jesus, the more you engage with Jesus, the more you press into his purposes in the world, the more you will cry. Moved by your own city, moved by our city, by the scapes of our city, to share in his tears that he is weeping. To see the things that he is weeping about that we haven't even seen half our life, and then to share in the weeping of God over the brokenness of our cities. to share in his agony. When we taste the oppression and the brokenness of this world, we weep, and I think we cry out, Maranatha, come, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, Maranatha. Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us, please save us, and Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, Jesus. Maybe in the words of Berthine Canty, fix it, Jesus, fix it, fix it. Come, Jesus. Just this week, we were reminded, as many of us engaged again in the weeping of our world, this week, many of us were reminded of the 17 students killed in Parkland as hundreds of thousands marched across the country in the March for Our Lives in all 50 states, reminding us again of the problem of the crisis of gun violence and mental health and the obsession in the American psyche for machines of war. Maranatha, Maranatha, come Jesus, Hosanna, please save us, please save us. And just this week, we saw the unjust murder of Stephon Clark, unarmed, holding a white iPhone in his grandmother's backyard. On the receiving end of 20 rounds from two officers who failed to identify themselves and failed to give him even a moment to comply before ending his life due to the immediate threat of his white iPhone. And we know, we know if that phone was in the hands of someone else, someone that looked a little different, this, we would not be having this conversation. Maranatha, Maranatha. Come, Jesus, come, come, fix it, Jesus, come, Jesus. Hosanna, please save us, Jesus, please save us. We see the ongoing plight of injustice facing black people, not just racial prejudice on an individual level, but that racism infecting all of the societies in which they must live. All the levels of systems within they must, li they must live. And the relentless trauma, unrelenting trauma in the black community and the incessant anxiety and fear of black parents, which I cannot understand to raise a child in this world. And we cry, Maranatha, Maranatha. And even, the, listen, even the interplay between these two things that happened this week, that high school kids decide to, to protest and to say, we don't want to be killed, we don't want to be shot, please stop shooting us. Please make it possible to stop shooting us. And they get participation by hundreds of thousands of people in fi across 50 states, and yet if black people ask for the same thing, please stop shooting us. It's somehow a controversial, and, it's, and it becomes very political, and it becomes very divisive, and it becomes very debated, and we're not really sure where we should be or who should we sh should say it in front of. Even that, somehow I can say, yes, I don't want high schoolers to be killed, and I support this thing, and what this thing this week is exposing is terrible. Maranatha, Maranatha. 
Please, Jesus, come. Save us. Save us from the ongoing logic of white supremacy working itself out like a virus in every public and private domain of society where we cry, Maranatha, Maranatha, come, Jesus, come. Come, come, Jesus, save us, save us. And I just felt this week that, 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 that God, yes, he had a, Jesus had a triumphal entry 2,000 years ago, and yet every day, every morning, we wake up and he has a triumphal entry into our lives and into our world and into our, our families and into our spaces. And every day we must confront this reality again that he did not to com come to command and to control and to conquest, but he came to lay down his life as a martyr for the purposes of God in this world. And we have to decide, are we laying down our branches and our coats for that, actually, that? That Jesus, that King, that God. Every morning, he's in, every day he's entering in. He's, he has his own triumphus every single day. And for us to receive who that Jesus is and then to immediately with him, with him at the end of that triumphus on the hill, look at the scape of our city and weep with him. To be willing to see what it is that he sees, to have his eyes, to ask him to open our eyes, and then to be willing and brave enough to weep with him. And to say, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes, I'm in. Whatever it takes. Whatever you're asking of me, whatever you're asking of my community, I'm in. I'm in. Because Maranatha, Hosanna, come Lord, save us. Please save us. I'm going to ask Jason to go ahead and come up, and I'm just going to close. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it, y'all. <laughs> I'm really trying. <laughs> the way we anticipate and celebrate the triumph of God is not with the laying down of palms, but if he, the author of our faith, confronted an unjust world by laying down his life, then so too our lives are laid down to weep with him and to drive out, to flip tables, to love and to cleanse, first ourselves, first ourselves. Because the house of God is no longer a temple, it is His people. And it is no longer buildings that command themselves as houses of prayer, but it is our people who are houses of prayer, our communities that are His house of prayer. And it is us, our people and our communities to which He comes to cleanse, to renew, to drive out, to flip tables. See, Palm Sunday is a day for the oppressed. Let's not get that wrong. It's not a day for oppressors. It is a day for the oppressed. It is a day where Jesus, his triumphal entry is a confirmation of his inaugural address in Luke 4. That's what this is. He did indeed come to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And yet we wait in this in-between space where he has come, offered us full promise, secured the reality of that promise when we could not, went to a cross for us, the powerlessness of a cross laying down a sword and violence and instead put himself on the line against oppression against our own sin against injustice in the world to restore the world to his justice 
And yet we wait in this in-between moment. And we wait with the promise of a true and final triumphus, do we not? That this was not Jesus' only triumphal entry right here in Luke 19, but we, he promises, and we actually get a glimpse of, of it in Revelation, the final triumphus, the final triumphant entry of the Father, of Christ Jesus, come to renew all things in this world. The final triumphus of God. Revelation says he, he won't be sitting on a donkey, he'll be riding a chariot. And he won't be empty-handed, he'll be carrying a sword have a crown and suffering of God's people will end and he will finally and eternally restore the justice of his everlasting kingdom in this world wipe every tear that we have shed with him and the reason those tears can be wiped is because he he has made right every wrong and there is no more need to cry no more need to stand on that hill and gaze at the city of God and weep, but only to be full of joy and worship. This is the promise. This is the hope that we have. And so today we remember that Jesus hears our cries, Maranatha, Maranatha, Hosanna. He has come for us. He sees you. He sees your suffering. He weeps with you. He has tasted the brokenness of this world and suffered under its tyranny, and yet he broke its power. And he will come again to restore you, to restore this world. And that hope will not put us to shame. It will not put you to shame. And so in the in-between, we welcome the triumphal entry of God into our lives every day. And we offer him not branches, but our entire lives by weeping with him and saying, God, send us. Open our eyes to that which breaks your heart. We weep with you. And send us to do what it is that you would have us to do. Our lives are yours. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks, saying, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you remember me, and you remember me for who he really is. You remember that he came without a sword or a war horse or a chariot, but he rode a donkey to the death of his life on a cross. The weakness and powerlessness of that moment. When you eat it, you remember him. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup It's a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you do so in remembrance of me. Guys, this morning, this...